I just want to remind everybody who's interested in making purchases in our store that our cyber sale uh, will end tomorrow, November 30th. So the sale will go through November 30th. And use the code CYBER on the cart page before proceeding to checkout to receive 40% off everything in our store. Beginning December 1st, we will have a holiday sale um, with 20% off everything from December 1st through the end of the year. Uh, so if you miss this sale, you can still do that one. Thanks also to Patricia Martin for doing this series of interviews that we are publishing as part of our holiday giving drive. If you would like to support the Institute, you can make a donation by clicking the link in the show notes or by going to youngchicago.org slash give. Every bit does help. Okay, thanks. Welcome to the Jung Anthology Podcast from the C.J. Jung Institute of Chicago. Jung in the World, Jung and the New Generation of Creatives, with Jessica Carson. In this episode, Patricia Martin interviews author Jessica Carson about her life, her book Wired This Way, and the contemporary culture. Jessica Carson is the Director of Innovation at the American Psychological Association, an expert in residence at Georgetown University and founder of the Magnum Opus Academy. Jessica is the author of Wired This Way, an exploration of the light and dark of the creative mind, which bears its own TED Talk. With a diverse background in psychology, neuroscience, startups, venture capital, and mindfulness, Jessica's work sits at the intersection of psychology and creatorship. She has been featured across a range of institutions, including Georgetown University, the London School of Economics, Columbia Business School, Oxford University Press, and many others. Before we get to the interview, I just want to read a couple of submissions from our listeners. Thomas from Denmark says, I'm in training as a Jungian analyst and looking for podcasts about anything Jungian, generally hoping to find nuggets of wisdom about the role of soul and spirit in our life in the material world of work and relationships. An anonymous listener from Illinois says, After 40 years asleep in the corporate world, I ended up in rehab for alcohol abuse. I believe the AA influence program saved my life and brought me back from the edge of suicide. I was only vaguely aware of the Jungian connection to the 12 steps, and this podcast helped me understand the deep connection. In addition, Jung's works have reacquainted me with my long-lost religion, and given a glimpse of why there might be, or must be, meaning in life. It is encouraging to listen to literate, psychologically well-adjusted presenters speak unashamedly about synchronicity, the god Imago, the self, and other spiritual topics that I consciously repressed or even ridiculed so I would not be seen as a nut by my corporate competitors. The Jungian Institute's podcasts are a real public service, and I commend you. Well, thank you. So thanks to everybody who has continued to share a little bit about yourselves. Um, if you would like to share something about yourself, where you currently are in your learning and exploration, um, just click the link in the show notes and I'd be happy to read it. 
You can support this free podcast by making a donation, becoming a member of the Institute, or making a purchase in our online store. Your support enables us to provide free and low-cost educational resources to all. And if you make a donation now, it'll be part of our holiday giving drive. So please help us reach our $25,000 goal by the end of the year if you can. Thanks so much. And now here's the interview. Hello, this is Patricia Martin, and welcome to Jungian Anthology. I'm a professional affiliate at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago, and I'll be your host today. In this series, we'll be talking with people whose work intersects with Jung's ideas to tell a more contemporary story of his enduring impact in a brave new world. Carl Jung was known to be endlessly creative and said, art is an innate drive within all of us. People who identify as creatives are prone to certain mental health issues that are somewhat specific to their work. In particular, their shadow material is often overlooked in the culture in favor of a more romantic, poetic view of their identities. Author Jessica Carson uses Jungian theory in her book, Wired This Way, that is a guide to the well-being of the creative spirit. And it helps us understand creatives as a more fully complex human being. Hello, Jessica Carson. Welcome to Jungian Anthology. Thank you so much. I'm so pleased to be here. Well, I am about halfway through your latest book, Wired This Way, on finding mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being as a creator. Yes. How are you so, liking it? <laughs> yeah. Right. A beautiful cover, too, might I add. Thank you. I, so I'm, I'm wondering... Now, I have to ask, what inspired you to write this book at this time? Yeah. So I, the book is not about me per se, but I do include one chapter where I talk about sort of the grotesque details of why, why this work came to be, because, you know, we can only really teach what we are, ourselves have experienced. And um for better or for worse, my coming to this work uh, arrived through my own dark night of the soul, as happens to so many of us. Uh, a few years ago, I was working in venture capital. So I was a young woman working in a very uh, archetypally masculine environment, um, all about stoicism and aggression and logic and practicality. And all I wanted to do was to conform with that version of success. And I ended up wandering so far away from myself and my, my archetypally feminine qualities, my, my intuition, my creativity, that my body ended up giving me a sign that I was out of alignment. And that was quite symbolically that I, I began to lose my hair as a young 20 something year, year old woman. And, and that was devastating to me, but it was really a wake up call that set me on this path to understand why the creative mind, the entrepreneurial mind, these high potential minds tend to be so prone to both the light and the dark of experience. Uh, and really it began as a quest to better understand myself and my own wiring uh, with the aim of hopefully creating a, a map of sorts that um, maybe ideally other people could use to guide their journey. Um, so it was born from a lot of uh, 
uh, pain and misery as a lot of good things <laughs> are, but I'm so pleased that it's out in the world now. Oh, it must be wonderful. You've spread yeah. the message of this book now yeah. uh, around the world. You know, you've got a TED talk and yeah. I'm just wondering how, what are you learning from the way people respond to your message? <laughs> Oh, it's so interesting because, I mean, the book is about the light and the dark of the entrepreneurial and creative mind. And so what I find is that people, there are two kind of cohorts of people in terms of how they respond to the book. Uh, one cohort, which I would probably say are maybe the majority of people, they they just don't get it. They don't understand this idea of um, or, or really care to understand the idea of having multitudes and being full of contradiction and being full of complexity and really actually leaning into that and understanding why our shadows and why our dark side, so to speak, contains so much of our creative and productive potential. But then for the people who it does resonate with, it really, really deeply resonates. And so it tends to resonate with people who are um, sensitive high potentials, right? They're, they're <laughs> empaths who, who are very, um, who are very kind of grounded in their pursuit of earthly success, but are constantly in this battle um, between sort of their practical pursuits and their deep, deep sensitivity and their, their desire, uh, their, you know, seeking tendencies. Um, and so it's been difficult because I'd love for everyone to just love it. Um, course, but that's not right? always the case. Right. And I think that in a way that actually means that I'm probably doing something right. Yeah. You know, when I think about, I just read the other day, uh, I was reading, uh, Deirdre Bear's biography of Carl Jung. And she says that Carl Jung ended up believing at the end, near the end of his life, that he would remain misunderstood <laughs> because yeah. his, his ideas were simply too complex yeah. and too hard to describe. He was describing things one had to believe in without seeing necessarily. Yeah. And that Maria von Franz said that his writing style was actually quite intentional. Yeah. It, it wasn't a mishap. And so I think this business of complexity is, um, you know, it's a very timely issue because we have yeah. shorter and shorter attention spans. We, we want a bumper sticker explanation <laughs> that we can. We want an away. airport read. Right. Right. Yeah. And so I, I have to ask this question as you were working with venture capitalists who, by the way, are notorious for asking the same questions and, you know, assessing the value proposition through the same set of rigors that the other venture capitalists use. I mean, it's a pretty buttoned down culture. And here you are, a cre you know, you, you self-describe as a creative, yeah. you self-describe as somebody who's complex. What was it like to be in that dissonance? Oh, I mean, it was, it was, soul wrenching to the point of having like a complete uh, crisis of meaning because I was young enough at the time. And I was also, you know, had that kind of desire to please, particularly desire to please the masculine, both um, literally and, and, and metaphorically um, in terms of, 
making my my bosses happy, but also really appeasing to to the masculine. Um, I completely abandoned you know everything that you you see in me now and and you you see me on camera so you see i have uh art all around me i have a feminine home a feminine aesthetic a feminine i guess essence about me but if you, you know when i was working in venture capital that was not the case at all i mean i wore black turtlenecks <laughs> i wore you know i was impatient and sharp and aggressive and all of those things because i thought that that's what it meant to be a successful creator and so i was experiencing all kinds of distress as a result of of what i was suppressing within myself which was the feminine that wanted to emerge and then of course the symbolism of losing the hair really the ultimate symbol of the feminine uh of, of wisdom and um and i'm looking at you now with these long golden tresses thinking yeah <laughs> oh as you're pulling that out of your, you know, by the handful, it must have been dazzlingly frightening. Oh, I, and I love that you use that word because it was exactly that. And, you know, I went to doctor after doctor and healer after healer, and I really channeled the masculine qualities that I had, I had cultivated at first into finding answers. And I, you know, I flew out to Mayo Clinic and I mean, nobody could give me an answer. And the only, it only stopped when I began to accept it and look at the complexity that underlied the issue, looked at the dualities in my own personality that I wasn't making space for, because it can be so, so difficult in a world that does love the bumper sticker, as you say, to be both masculine and feminine, to be logical and creative, to be um, practical and intuitive, to be scientific and whimsical, to be all of these things. And I mean, to be honest, I still struggle with that balance as someone who is very authentically feels like I have one foot in both worlds. But that's also, I think, the beautiful challenge of this world that we're living in where people are encouraged to be the wholeness of who they are is can we challenge ourselves to be all of those things concurrently without um, depleting ourselves by ping-ponging so drastically between the two, which is what I felt that I was doing. Oh, so interesting. So when did you, in the process of understanding that here's what I'm hearing from you. Complex people can often fall ill in complex ways. In other oh, words, sure. it's not just one thing. It's not just one diagnosis. Well, it's as I, layered uh, as they are. It, that's exactly right. So um, uh, not to, to uh, cheat on Young by bringing up William James, but uh, he has a concept that I love, which is the concept of the difference between the once born soul and the twice born soul. And so William James believes that the ones born souls are the people among us who he deems the healthy souls, right? So these are the people who they don't care much uh, about the complexities in the world or the complexities in themselves. To them, the world is generally fine. They kind of view the world as uh, through rose tinted lenses and, and, and they don't have this like innate desire to change the world or to change themselves. But as a result of that kind of general happiness, they don't suffer that much in mind, body, or spirit, 
Whereas the twice born soul, which I think anyone listening to this podcast, anyone who follows young is a twice born soul, as James was, as I am, as I'm quite sure you are as well, are the people who view the world as a double storied mystery, right? Like we are acutely aware of our own flaws and shortcomings, as well as the flaws and shortcomings in the world around us. And as a result of this acute awareness, we tend to struggle in mind, body, and spirit. We are the six souls, so to speak. But he also said we are the souls with the most potential. Because through that journey of kind of disintegrating, of being so acutely aware of all of the potentialities that you can expand into as a person or the world can expand into, because of your willingness to look into that gap between reality and possibility, that's where people change the world. And so that's also why creators tend to, you know, the the case that I make in the book is that the reason that creators tend to disproportionately struggle with things like mental illness or emotional distress or stress-related illness or existential meltdowns or fill in the blank is because the twice-born souls are self-selecting into these complex and difficult endeavors because they're looking to grow into their potentialities and because they're looking to heal the world or leave an impact or fulfill their destiny. They, they feel filled with the sense of having a purpose or having a destiny and are willing to do the hard thing to get there, but in the process are susceptible to, you know, the dark nights of the soul, uh, but only because they're here with a purpose, right? So it's kind of this, this uh, aerobaros, it's a circular kind of, of process. Well, you know, it strikes me that because Carl Jung worked with people who were in psychological distress, or they wouldn't be showing up to his practice, that he was very much seeing and dealing with people and their complexities. So for instance, he thought that there was a lot of healing potential in fairy tales. Yeah. And, you know, you read fairy tales now, and it they're not, they're not made by Disney. They have light and they have dark. Oh, yeah. And it is it is the alchemy and the energy that gets cast off by those, you know, that shadow material that enters into the story that takes what could be a very childlike, um, wondrous story and turns it into something that, you know, becomes very dark but only to render a lesson creatively. Yes. And so does that make sense to you? It com- oh, it completely does. I mean, Young said there is no energy unless there's a tension of opposites, right? Mm-hmm. There's no, you need to have this, you know, just as you need in every good uh, storyline, you know, look at Joseph Campbell as an example in the hero's journey, you have to have in order to have this rich and meaningful story or rich and meaningful journey, you have to go into the abyss. You have to go into the belly of the whale and you then you have to return with the elixir. And it's the contrast of the two that make the movie so great or the book so beautiful or the song so powerful. And I think in the same way, those of us who are running around with whether it's traumas or innate 
predispositions to mental illness or uh, astounding systemic sensitivity. Hello, my empaths and highly sensitive people out there. You know, we we contain those those dyads. We contain the, the dualities that when combined can be both highly creative, but also highly destructive. So if you think about, you know, um, atoms smashing together in a nuclear reactor, when that's harnessed properly, you create electrical ener- energy. You know, you, 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 you light up Manhattan. When that's not harnessed properly, you have Chernobyl, right? And so I think right. the same thing can be said of those complexities and those dualities within the, within the individual as well. So the fact that I kind of had these, let's say, masculine and feminine tendencies that were banging up against each other inside of my being, but I didn't know how to harness them. I had my own kind of Chernobyl meltdown, right? But and now- your own descent story, right? Right, but now- <laughs> you, you have to shed your rings and your, your, your <laughs> garments and- <laughs> Everything was radioactive, absolutely. I mean, the graphite was everywhere, but then- you know, now it's not that I'm any less complex, right? But now on my good days, right, I'm able to harness that so that instead of being a meltdown, it turns into a book or it turns into a TED talk or it turns into a beautiful conversation like this. Thank you. Well, I, I, I'm wondering though, so how did you come to the work of Carl Jung? <laughs> Everyone that's always, whenever I ask that story, by the way, I always ask people to tell me their young story. Yeah. It's complex. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, wow. Yeah. This was not just any old, how do you do? Yeah. No. <laughs> and it was not for me uh, uh, either. It was actually extraordinarily uncanny and actually disconcerting. Um, there's, I think it was, either Elton John or the Beatles who, who wrote a song, woke up in the middle of the night and their head was filled with this song and they could have sworn it was so clear to them that they could have sworn they stole it from somebody else because the song came through and it was so great and so clear. And they thought that they they were like um, channeling someone else's song. And I, I think that song ended up being let it be actually, I have to fact check myself on that one. But so my experience being introduced to him was actually not being introduced to him. So I wrote the book Wired This Way, having almost no knowledge of of Young. Um, so I, I uh, worked at the National Institutes of Health. I have a background in psychology, but I really didn't know much at all about the work of Young. And then I ended up writing this book uh, in a very kind of intuitive way, um, uh, you know, for people who are open to it, I, I often think that I, I channeled it in a sense and it, it just kind of came through. And then when I started circulating it to publishers, um, everyone was like, oh, you wrote a book on Jungian psychology. And and so I, I was just kind of confused by this and I started looking into it more and I realized that, oh my God, I had written a, a, young, a book around a Jungian framework of 
the light and the dark and the use of archetypes and the power in opposites and the power of wholeness and integration. And I had actually used terms that are his, you know, I'd used terms in the book like integration or light and dark without ever knowing that those were actually terms that he had used. And so it was just a very, so it was only in the aftermath of circulating the book that I started diving very deeply into the work of Young. And as I did, I realized, oh my God, um, I know all of you know, not I know all of this, right? But that's I it's so familiar because it's intuitive, right? And I think that that's increasingly the case is that people are coming to recognize the power in archetypes and symbolism and shadow work and light and dark. And they don't even necessarily always realize that that's an existing framework or paradigm that's out in the world, but perhaps they're downloading it from, you know, the the collective or, or, um, you know, they're just very in touch and in tune and intuitive themselves, whatever the case, I do think that his work is making a comeback, um, in, in big and powerful ways. And whether it's always attributed to him, it may not be. Um, but I, I think it's powerful nonetheless. Well, I, I wonder as you now, my understanding of your career is that you have, you're working in health still, but for a large health organization. Yeah. And I wonder if that gives you a bird's eye view into the nature of the collective in Hmm. this moment. And what is the state of the collective from where Jessica sits today? So Dr. Carson, What's the state of the collective? The state of the collective. Oh, God. I mean, I don't think I could speak for the whole collective, but one interesting, I think, um, one interesting aspect that I'd like to touch on that I, I see or learn about a lot of through, through my work is the state of distress in young people, um, you know, in, in teenagers, the rates of mental illness are astronomically high, the rates of things like suicidality uh, are are rising. And, you know, I I can't help but think that, you know, we are, we are in a world now where this idea of um, you can be, you can be anything, you know, you do, you can be any gender, you can be any orientation, you can be, and that, all those are wonderful, beautiful um, luxuries to have the ability to be anything that you want. I also think it can be tremendously overwhelming when you give a tiny human the ability to 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 look at the whole complex world and their complexities and say, craft, craft your own sort of like, you know, make your own sense of it. And I think that can be extremely anxiety inducing to see all that's wrong in, in the world. And, um, I think there's a lot of interesting things that are happening with the woke movement that are not necessarily good. And I think that it can create a lot of stress and anxiety and these little identities that are still forming, um, and so I think that there's a lot of overwhelm that's happening around kind of the um, the blessing and the burden of being able to be anything and everything that you want, right? <laughs> yes. I, you know, I, I, you're making me want to reflect on some of what Jung had to say about, um, you know, sacredness and 
understanding the power of the divine in our lives. And when that is removed and it's all on us, the burden is getting ever more, as we become more complex and the world becomes more complex, the burden gets heavier and heavier. And the question is where, how far can we go? Is there a point when we begin to break down in order to become something else in the same way that, you know, we, we have a descent story. Do we begin a descent story and then do we, is there a recoalescence of our collective sense of, of, of how the world works? I don't know. I mean, it's a big complex question I'm asking here, but I'd love to hear what you would chip into that. Yeah. Well, and you, you actually said it, this is the first time I'm, I'm articulating this in real time. So I, you know, and I don't want to be misconstrued as saying that uh, having these sort of social liberties of, of, gender fluidity or, or what have you is a, is a bad thing because it certainly is not. But, you know, I think that when we're given so much autonomy combined with so much awareness of the complexities of the world, because now through social media and through the news and all of that, there is just, um, you know, we're, we're kind of like allowed to, to sort of disintegrate and reintegrate ourselves in, in all of these different ways. But for a young person, that's just, that just must feel so overwhelming and so difficult. Um, yeah, I have a lot of empathy for young people today, especially around social media, because they're also seeing all of the selves that they could possibly be, right? They're seeing all of the different, uh, little bottles of elixirs on on the shelf and um, and what that is going to do to the individual and collective identity will that be a good thing or or will that be kind of a chaotic thing where we we lose that sense of anchoring and in, in who we are because our boundaries of the mind become so thin uh, so permeable so playful that we lose that sense of of us. But maybe that sense of us is not actually, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't aim for that. These are big, complicated questions. Well, it's making me wonder, though. You you sound like someone, because you have, again, self-identified as being creative and hence complex, you have to be working on something right now. What 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 is making Jessica Carson tick right now? I love that. So I'm actually, I am, I'm working on a, another book right now. Uh, This one is looking at actually reclaiming the power of dark events. So looking at aspects of our dark history and making a case for actually why we shouldn't be canceling any of it. Um, Because what we so often see you know, in the same sense that post-traumatic growth may happen for the individual, this also happens collectively, right? So in the aftermath of um, terrorist attacks or natural disasters or plagues or what have you, we often see these amazing creative births following the dark periods. We see the return following the, the, the descent and I believe that what we are doing by um, shaming the the 
the, the people or, or events or activities we deem as dark or by canceling them or this obsession with woke culture, which is really all about, you know, projection is we're actually not allowing those growth cycles to, to complete themselves, right? We're kind of cutting them short of their transformation potential. So instead of actually allowing the dark to transform into the light, we're just, we're, we're just kind of chopping the, the seedling off uh, at the roots. And so it is looking at historical examples of um, whether it's the uh, uh, Chernobyl to bring up that example or the syphilis pandemic or the bubonic plague or uh, a factory fire. We see so much actually light on the other end of this darkness if we allow the cycle to kind of transpire naturally and why we really need to be taking more of that perspective when we're so quick just to take, you know, burn everything down and take everything down and what have you, because there's a lot that we can learn from the darkness if we're tolerant of it. Well, yes. Why are we so intolerant of it, though? Why is it so frightening? <laughs> it's an excellent question. It, well, I mean, it's, I feel like this is, this was one of Young's core driving questions, right? Is like, why are we so scared to look at the shadows and the darkness? And I mean, I, I'm sure he said it somewhere better than, than I ever could, but I have to imagine it's because, you know, we're, we're, we're so scared of what we ourselves contain, right? Because we we all contain darkness and shadows, and so by canceling it, you know, we're we're just we're, it's it's projection, and and um, we are living in a culture now that really just is very rooted in the masculine archetype and thinks that everything can just be good and fine and productive and stoic and orderly all the time. But really with the dark feminine, with the chaos, we get the the tornado clearing the field for new growth. We get the forest fire um, cracking open the seeds to be planted. You know, we, we get the chaos brings paves the path for the next cycle of lightness. And so when we stop that short, we're really doing ourselves a disservice. Uh, And, you know, we see it time and again throughout history, how the bubonic plague was followed by the Italian Renaissance or how um, uh, the the wars of religion were followed by, by the enlightenment, or, you know, this is just history repeats itself again and again, if we're willing to, uh, you know, and, and we can learn from it, but only if we're willing to, to understand it and accept it. Well, here's what I would like to say about complex questions and complex people and complex ideas is that whenever we have someone on Jungian anthology who can speak so eloquently to all of that, we, we, we always feel like jubilant, like, oh, wow, <laughs> this is someone who really can handle it, you know? I, so, I love that. <laughs> right. You know, it's not a make it, not, not a keep it simple kind of, if you're a Jungian, nothing is simple. Nothing is simple. Do you ever have simple guests? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, but, but by the same token, I, I just want to, I want you to think about your elixir. And the elixir of the book, 
And I am going to ask you to boil it down into something that is a takeaway for people. We, mm-hmm. you know, the thing about complexity, and, and I think this is part of our burnout as a society is we listen to stories and we know there's more to them than meets, than meets the eye. We know that there, it's not a simple problem. We know it, it, it you know, but, but yeah. we're listening to a simple piece of news about it. And it's distilled down in such a way that if you're a, co- a complex person, you're having to sense, you know, the reverberance of the complexity without it ever being acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, while it seems like an unfair question, hey, boil this down for me. I know that people also are really grateful when they yeah. know, you know, if there was one small step, if there was one thing that I could do or understand or have perspective about, then, you know, I'm, I'm better for it. Yeah. I'm not helpless. Yeah. So let's start with how, how what do you mean when you say elixir? So in, for me, elixir has a, a few meanings. I mean, elixir is obviously uh, referring to some kind of medicinal or healing substance. So it's something that confers a degree of healing, but it's also, you know, in Campbell's hero's journey, it's uh, the return with the, the elixir is the is, is sort of the end point. And the elixir doesn't necessarily have to be a medicinal potion. It can be a lesson. It can be, a, you know, a, a learning. It can be a relationship. It can be a creation. So really, to me, an elixir is the outcome of the process going into the shadow and then emerging with a trans, some kind of transformation. So when you finished writing this book and you saw it in print and you got to hold it in your hands, what came to you as, if there's one thing I want people to get from this book, it's this. In other words, I'm asking you, what, it, what was your elixir that yeah. you wanted to share with this book? Hope. I wanted to share hope because... For people who are so sensitive, for people who are so aware, for people who are so complicated, you can always feel like there's something wrong with you. My whole life, I had people telling me there was just always something wrong with me because I was processing and perceiving the world in a different way. Um, And even, even the things that I thought were great about myself, people still thought was weird or, you know, somehow pathological because it was different. And I wanted to give a sense of hope that the the scarlet letters, the skeletons, the sensitivities, the shadows, that those are treasures too. And that that's what makes you so miraculous as a creator. And that the second that you begin listening to the dialogue that says you should doubt it or you should pathologize it or you should hide it or shame it or suppress it, that's when you begin losing your creative magic. So the message would be, if any of this resonates with you, I I hope you feel a sense of hope that you're not broken, but that you're just wired this way and that that's a beautiful way to be wired. What a fantastic message. And 
It's a perfect place to end today. Thank you so much, Jessica Carson, for being with us. Thank you. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org. Thank you to our 2020 donors who gave at the contributing member level and above. Barbara Anand, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Jackie Cape, Brian, Eric Cooper and Judith Cooper, Kevin Davis, George J. Didier, Mary Doherty, James Fidelibus, John Koroluski, Marty Manning, Diane Sherwood, Deborah P. Stutzman, Deborah Tobin, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, Gerald Weiner, Karen West and James Taylor, and Alan Young. If you would like to join our generous community of supporters, just go to youngchicago.org slash give.